tuned to Morricone Island on WFMU. I'm your host, Devin Levins, every Tuesday from 8 to 9 p.m. playing the soundtrack hits. This week is no exception. Joining us, returning, Michael Riesman of the Philip Glass Ensemble, music director and keyboardist since the mid-70s. He is also the conductor of the majority of Glass's scores, as well as his film scores, including Kundun, Mishima, Thin Blue Line, and A Brief History of Time, as well as non-film scores, Einstein at the Beach, and Music in 12 Parts. And he's back from his January 2015 appearance. Check the archives, as always. When he was out at the station with violinist Chase Spruill, they were promoting a performance of the Poison Rouge for Glass and Blood concert works from the bloodiest film scores by Philip Glass. But he's back now to discuss an all-new live scoring of Godfrey Reggio's classic 1982, Koina at New York City's Town Hall on Wednesday, November 29th at 7 p.m. Described as an extended meditation on human technology and its deterioration of the natural environment. It's the production that helped push Glass's works and name into popular culture. It's first in the Katsi film trilogy with Powa Katsi and uh, Nakoi Katsi. And the collaboration between Godfrey Reggio and Philip Glass continued for many more films, which we'll get into. I'm speaking with Michael Riesman the keyboardist and music director of the Philip Glass Ensemble since 1974 and 76, respectively. And I welcome you back to Morricone Island. Well, thank you. It's good to be back. And excited to learn that uh, coming up very quickly on Wednesday, November 29th at uh, New York City's Town Hall, you guys will be revisiting the 1982 Koina live score as originally composed by Philip Glass, and um, you were involved from the the beginning. Uh, Godfrey Reggio's, I guess, first in a long line of series and collaborations with you and uh, the ensemble. What exactly, timing-wise, brought this about, and why, from your perspective, is it a nice time to revisit Koenigsegg? Well, Koenigsegg is ageless. It's about the world in a way that it was and is and will be and it's a prescient film made in 82, but it's every much as important today in terms of the way it makes people look at the world as it was when it was released. And, you know, we have been promoting it, trying to get performances arranged, and with good success. We've done it within the last two months. We did a performance in Athens, a performance in Abu Dhabi, another one in Utrecht, and a couple of years ago, the last time, we did it in Rome. Now, I guess that was in 2022. Anyway, it's been on our agenda of uh, something to promote and something to work on again. And, uh, you know, we jump at the chance to, to present it. It's a great score, a great film. And together, when you see it live with live music instead of on a small screen, uh, 
in the theater, even with a soundtrack playing off the film. Live music is just a whole other experience for it because uh, it's just so intense and present. And I think it just draws people in more and it makes for a more powerful evening. So we are trying to do it as often as we can right now. And um, we are looking forward to, you know, more engagements of it. When was the first time you, you did perform it live? Was that the Hollywood Bowl show? No. Many years ago? That was quite a bit down the road. The original live performance was at uh, Avery Fisher Hall Lincoln Center. We uh, put together a, an expanded ensemble group. We had some a couple of live brass players. We had a couple of live singers. We added a couple of keyboards and uh, cobbled it together, kind of, but not in a form that would make sense to tour. You know, it was a one-off, um, successful and, you know, an important event. But after that, and let's see, what year was that? Well, it, it wasn't too long after it came out. Uh, I don't know, 85, 86 or something like that. We did the first live performance. And after we did that, we said, well, this was good, but we can't tour this with this group. We need to slim it down and get it into an ensemble that we could take on the road. And so ultimately what it came down to is, was I made an arrangement for the ensemble plus three more keyboard players. And the reason we needed three more keyboard players is the ensemble is covering all of the parts that we normally do, like all the fast notes and arpeggios and so on. And also covering, you know, the, the organ part and um, some of the slower things too. But um, what we didn't have enough hands for in the ensemble was to cover the brass and the chorus. We needed to have a synth chorus. We had one or two or three singers, depending on how many people in the ensemble are able to participate. But there's no way that we had enough fingers to play all the music without adding more people. So we had the division of labor was that we had a one guy who plays trumpets and trombones. There's a lot of brass in Carnegie Scotty. So, I mean, that's a major, major job just to do that. <laughs> There's a few other things too when they crop up, but the main part of it is playing the trumpets and trombones. The other guy, he's playing the French horn and other parts of the score that need uh, some kind of a keyboard to trigger them, such as the uh, the low bass note. We didn't travel around with the singer. They could just go, Carnegie Scotty, <laughs> that low part. So we've just had a sample of the original recording. So we need, you know, he was triggering that just with his hand on a, on a, on a note. And also there were sound effects. And, and then he also contributes to the choral accompaniment where we had to, to make the chorus sound decent in addition to our own singers. Originally, when we first started, it was Dora Arnstein. Now it's Lisa Bilava. In addition to her, we had basically three keyboards in the big choral numbers, two of them playing choral samples, one of them playing men's voices, the other playing women's voices, and the third one just filling it out with a string patch, playing both, just to kind of smooth it out. So this is what we managed to put together to be able to take it on the road. And boy, did we. We did so many shows of Carnegie's Country. I've lost count, really. Um, we took it to Europe in, in the 80s. We took it around the States. I mean, it was a great, it was a great thing that we had going and uh, just so hugely popular. I mean, just the audiences just roared with appreciation for Carnegie's Country. Every time, it's a standing ovation. It was without fail. So I can tell you about the Hollywood Bowl. 
the Los Angeles Philharmonic had been bugging Philip for years to say, we want to do Karnaskazi live. And he said, well, that's nice, but you can't do it without the ensemble. And he said, why not? And he said, there's just too much that's just not orchestral. It's like this, you know, arpeggio writing fast keyboards and winds and they have to be so synchronized. There's no way you guys are going to be able to do that, you know. And they're kind of like two rehearsals and, uh, you know, Russell Jefferson and a performance. So you're just not going to be able to do it. It's out of the question. So they they nagged him for, for years, and, and finally they gave up, and they said, okay, what do you want for us to do kind of He said, hire the ensemble as the soloist, as a solo group with the orchestra, and get Micah Reisman to conduct it, and then you can have your Karnaskazi. And that's what we did. So I made a new arrangement, putting stuff that had originally been in strings and brass and so on, back in real strings and brass. And it's a great arrangement. I mean, there are 16 brass players, and the string section, of course, is small. In Karnaskazi, there are no violins. It's just violas, cellos, and basses. And then, of course, we had a chorus. We had a real live chorus. We had... Uh, you know, 32 or whatever voices in Los Angeles. There was like the some youth chorus or other. And they were excellent. And, uh, you know, it was a great smash success. And we've done it a fair number of times since then. Uh, we did it in Rome uh, in 2021. We did it in uh, in uh, Bergen, Norway. We did it in Groningen, the Netherlands. And uh, we did it in New York with the New York Philharmonic. So it's been a hit, um, that version. But it requires a symphony orchestra, and that requires an invitation. And uh, we want to just be able to do it by ourselves. So we still do the ensemble alone version of it. Is that what we'll be seeing at Town Hall? That's what we're. That's what you'll be seeing at Town Hall. Yes. So what's what's the instrumentation of that? Like just just solely the ensemble? Well, but we have two extra keyboard players. We used to have three extra keyboard players, but now Philip Glass is no longer playing with us. And I was able to condense, he had a very simple part, and I was able to condense and do a new arrangement without Philip, without needing an extra keyboard player. So, in fact, there are the three of us keyboard players, and Lisa's keyboard player slash singer, the three of us in the ensemble playing keyboards, plus two extras. And the rest of it is just the regular wins. And that's that. That's the whole band. So it's two extra people beyond the core ensemble. And that's who you took with you to Europe most recently for the performances in Athens. Yes, although we did actually have a chorus in Athens. Uh, they had a youth chorus, and they said, can we do ensemble plus chorus? And I said, yes, we can do that. And um, in fact, we had done it once before at Kennedy Center, this version of uh, a chorus with the ensemble. So, yes, that works out as well. Yeah, I mean, if there's a piece of you know quote-unquote film music that deserves to be performed live I, I believe it's this one you know I know how much work and effort goes into just any film score but this one you know seamlessly without having to deal with uh, like sound design and dialogue and whatnot and and how much work has gone into it and um, besides the fact of how popular it is and well known uh, and closely associated with the Philip Glass Ensemble it just seems like something you would want to get the chance at any any time you could to perform it live, you know, within reason. I, I assume it has to be a different beast in a live setting versus when you recorded it and you had the ability to do overdubs. And do you do you deal with a click track or is it less important to really hit certain marks and things like that? No, I don't use a click track. I've never used a click track for live performances. 
and I never want to. I dislike it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you use it in a studio because you have to you have to get overdubs together and so there's no option. But for a live performance, no, we don't use a click. And it really just falls on my shoulders to keep it in sync as best I can. And the way I do it is just by having a very carefully marked score. So I know basically to a 16th note where like cuts are in film and I can see how I'm doing. And it's always a little bit of push and pull because I see, oh, I'm falling behind, I've got to speed up or I'm going ahead, so I've got to slow down. Hopefully not perceptibly. Uh, the problem is if you decide, oh my God, I'm going too fast and you, then you slow down too much, then when you get back in sync, you're going to be going too slow. Yeah. So that doesn't work. You have to sort of asymptotically approach the right tempo. And uh, hopefully, you know, it works sem seamlessly enough. I mean, there's a few little cuts that I'd like to hit better that I never seem to. But I don't really think the audience really notices or cares. You know, the music is all there and the movie is all there. And things not quite lining up all the time. It's not the uh, be-all and end-all of yeah. the production. So from your perspective, every performance is going to be slightly different. Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. And are, are there ever improvised sections or anything like that, or it's all just very much scored out? Is there any room for things to actually be slightly different besides the well, fact of timing? No, basically there isn't. You know, yeah. we have, we're just playing the score and trying to be as faithful as possible to it. But I can tell you a funny story. One time we were in Japan at Expo Nagoya, and we did, we were doing three shows there, the three trilogy films, Kaunoskatsu, Nakarkatsu, Nakarkatsu, all three. And Kaunoskatsu was the first one we showed up. And the projector was mis, uh, I guess it was misthreaded or something. It was running too fast, significantly too fast. Oh, no. And I, I had to make a decision. Okay, either we stop the show and start over, and then are they going to be able to fix it? Or do they know what's wrong even? Or can we just muddle through? So after the first number, I said, well, you know, there, there are a number of pieces that could run long and it's not really going to matter. I said, but when we get to this piece, the grid, there's no way. I mean, that's such a long piece. I said, there's just no way that we can do that, you know. So while we were playing one of the other pieces that wasn't, you know, so demanding, I turned my pages forward and I mentally made a cut in the grid. I beckoned to this sound engineer off stage as they come out, and uh, I talked to him, and I dictated the cut that we were going to make mm -hmm. to him. And he went around from every player to the next and told them what to do. Wow. And it, On the fly. It, well, it still, it still it wasn't quite, I didn't quite cut enough to make it actually come out right, but it was, it was close enough in the ballpark that it wasn't ridiculous. Anyway, they were so ashamed. You can imagine the Japanese. Oh, my God. Did it work yeah. out? I mean, from your perspective, better than actually having well, to it stop was, it, right? The thing is, you know, the funny, yeah, it worked out better than stopping because, again, the stopping issue, well, are they going to be able to fix it? And, yeah. And what it amount of time? Nothing. Yeah. And also, the audience, it was, there was not, this was an expo, international expo. People came for the entertainment and they don't, I don't think they had any idea what they were going to see anyway. Right. I don't, there was not fans coming to see us. It was part of a, this big expo. You know. So you'd lose and, an audience potentially <laughs> if you stop it, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I thought, you know, these people probably don't know what they're seeing anyway, and it'll be fine. You know, That's, that was my on-the-spot snap decision, which I think was the right one. 
what were you all doing? Like, take me back to 1982 when you all got the an, initial contact from Godfrey Reggio to to get involved with this project. I mean, I know that there was some some success going on with the ensemble and, and Philip Glass's compositions because this was such a big hit for for you all and one of the one of the compositions that you were all best known for and probably right. like probably most requested. Were you all able to sustain livings at that point as musicians? Well, I think we were all successful enough by then uh, yeah. that uh, the day jobs were out. I mean, I never had a day job, <laughs> um, but I, you know, it, it, other than the fact that I, I kind of like, I, I do sort of moonlight as the IT guy for Dunvegan Music Publishers. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's kind of a day job, but anyway, um, and I still do that, but uh and just the reason being that I know more about this stuff than anybody else in the company. So kind of fell on me to like, uh, you know, do whatever needed to be done. Um, but anyway, at that time, uh, when we started working on Coin uh I don't know if you know the story about Philip and Godfrey getting together. There was a, a fellow, Michael Honig, who was hired by Godfrey to help come up with the soundtrack. And he said to Godfrey, you know, you should really get this guy, Philip Glass. He's really the guy to do this this track. And um, so Godfrey got a hold of Philip Glass, and Philip Glass just dismissed him right off the bat and said, no, I don't do soundtracks. But Godfrey wasn't one to give up. So what he did was he made, did something clever. He, he said, well, look, just come and look at, you know, 20 minutes of a screening. I want to show you some footage and play you some music. So he played 10 minutes of part of Karnas with some like commercial music. And then he played the same 10 minutes with a random needle drop on Philip Glass. And he said, see how much better that is? And Philip said, well, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And um, that's how that got started. And then we, uh, you know, we did, Karnaskati was amazing in one way that, in that we had the longest pre-production, in-production, post-production time of any sound probably that's ever been done. We worked on it for a solid year. I mean, that's unheard of. That the luxury of time to develop the soundtrack. And the reason it was able to work that way is because Godfrey really hadn't finished the film. So he was constantly coming up with a new idea, a new structure, and then Philip had to rewrite. And Godfrey wasn't any kind of a hurry. And Philip wasn't any kind of a hurry either. Just it was everything would, you know, take its due time to get done. And you know, it worked out between the time of actually having the first demo tracks recorded and having the final film mix, it was a whole year. So he was already, he was already working on music more than a year earlier. Uh, but that was when we started recording demo tracks. We sent them out. Godfrey had a studio in, in uh, Venice in California. He would get the tracks and he would mess around with them there. Philip and I went out one time to see him and talk about it and listen to the tracks and then we, you know, we went, finally it was time to like do the recording. We came back to New York. We did the recordings in New York uh, with uh, musicians around town, uh, some people from the ensemble, but uh, most people were actually not members of the ensemble at the time. They were, uh, we had a flute player, his name was Knifefinger. He's fabulous and famous. He walked in, looked at the score, he said, I can't play this, and was about to walk out. And uh, our contractor said, "No, yeah, yeah, come on, give it a give it a shot. You're not supposed to be able to play it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, because it's it's 
just murder this this rapid arpeggios high on the flute repetitive and, ostinato yeah over and over and over and over and no rests you know never Philip never writes a rest you have to take your own you know anyway we talked him into sticking around doing the show and doing the recording then you know we had the big brass sections and the strings i mean it was it was great great time doing these recordings and then uh, then it came time to mix it and we went out to uh, L.A. to do it. We, we did the mix at Warner Brothers Hollywood Studios in a, in a regular film mix room with a big screen and so on. So that's the way that went down. And uh, another little lesser-known story, I'd say maybe you know this. When we were at the end of like post-production and we already had enough in the can to show reels to people, there was a screening arranged for Francis Ford Coppola at Warner Brothers Hollywood Studios. He walked in, he saw the film, and he said, anyway that I could help. Just let me know. He loved it. So it was decided the way that he could help was to put his name on it. So the beginning of the film says, Francis for a couple of presents. He actually had nothing to do with the initial one being yeah. behind it. But he said, that's probably the best way to give it a cachet that's going to get into festivals. And of course it did. It got into the New York Film Festival in a big way, played at Radio City Music Hall for the premiere. And uh, it was a sensational opening. Critics loved it too, right? Every kind of everybody uniformly. Yeah. Well, two questions out of that. First, Michael Michael Honig, he was uh, at one point a member of Tangerine Dream, right? Yes. Was there any, was there ever a connection between like this German electronic music and in the Philip Glass ensemble? Did you have any crossover there? Or that was just not he really, was a fan no. of you guys, and he no, but yeah, I mean, not not not. Just, I mean, we knew their work and we all were into synthesizers, you know, so yeah. there was that combination, you know. Pioneering at the time. And he was he was a big fan of the Oberheim since at the time, the OBXA and the OB, and so was I, you know, so. My, under, my understanding, too, is that he mixed the first version of the recording and it was somewhat rejected, is that correct? Or is yes, it, he did he the re, first. remix it, I guess, is what I heard. He did the first film mix, and... I was there. I got so frustrated with the thing. I got angry. And I said, no, that's not right. He was like consulting his frequency books or something. And, oh, yeah, this is this frequency for that. You'd turn it up or that. You'd turn it down or something. And I, I just said, this is just nonsense. And uh, I got pretty steamed. And I was told to leave, to leave the session, go home to New York. I said, fine. That's about the best thing I could do right now. But then people realized that the mix sucked. <laughs> so I said, Michael, come back. Let's do it all over again. And I was in charge the next time. Yeah. So There's a budget for all this. Godfrey had kind of angels providing funds. You know. So I mean, I think the only f unfortunate thing for him was he ended up not making any money from Karnaskati because he had to give all his points away to get it finished. Mm. Yeah. So the only thing he was able to make money from was he licensed outtakes for commercial purposes. Mm -hmm. So if you've seen a lot of stuff on TV that's like looks like it's from Carlos Gazi, well, it kind of is because right. he sold that footage. Yeah, yeah. And then I guess with respect to Francis Ford Coppola, was so did I had read somewhere that, that he was involved with the it was his, was it his idea to bring in the pictographs in the Horseshoe Canyon? intro and outro and kind of tie that in in the beginning and end or that's just folklore. I don't think so no, folklore. That, no. that's uh, Godfrey doing that yeah. yeah 
Well, I'd, I've seen it at a number of times over the years, and it had been maybe 15 plus since the last time I had revisited Koinaskatsi. And um, I do think it does have special, like it has new meanings, and it probably does every year or, or with every generation. But, you know, pre like pre and post 9-11, pre and post yeah. COVID lockdown, um, yeah. even as recent as October 7th, what happened there? how technology humanity the earth how we all kind of mesh with each other you know and and mm -hmm. how it evolves but yeah it's it's something that i think that you can watch over and over so like if you have seen it 15 20 or when it originally came out years ago in a theater or at home on a dvd versus being able to see it live you're definitely going to get something different out of it with each viewing let alone the fact That's that you right. have this yeah you know, the intensity of live performers in, in front of you, which mm. always makes it, you know, better. <laughs> you know, ultimately, they were turned into a long collaboration between you all and, and Godfrey. Katsi trilogy, what's known as that, but there's even more that kind of, they all seem as if they yes. relate to nature and humanity and the earth and um, technology in some sense. Poet Katsi, Philip was able to go around the world a little bit for some of the filming. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, yes. And I did too. You I did went too, with him. yeah. Godfrey insisted, and with good reason, that Philip and I go and visit some of the areas where he was going to be filming. We didn't overlap with him, although we were both in Peru at the same time and hooked up in Lima for a day. But that wasn't the point of it. It just was kind of almost coincidental that he was there and we were there. But we went to places that he was shooting in order to absorb the musical culture of these places, which was important to him. And it did, in fact, have a big influence on the outcome of the film. Uh, Paukatsi, the, there's a trio of pieces called Anthem that are, in fact, based on these brass bands that we saw in the Altiplano, which were kind of a surprise. We visited this little town that's barely on the map, and there are no roads into it. And it was the feast day for the little church in that little town over this weekend. Uh, and it takes three days to have a feast day. You have the Friday night horse races where everybody gets drunk and nobody really cares who wins. And then the Saturday, which is a market day. And then the Sunday is a parade and mass day. So on Friday night, the, the horse races, everybody is playing these canas, bamboo flutes uh, and um, banging on drums. And then on Saturday, there wasn't as much music. It was people were busy selling and whatnot, the marketing. And then on Sunday, there was parades. <laughs> All the local villages had their own bands. And these bands consisted of saxophones and trumpets and Western snare drums and bass drums and cymbals and stuff like that. And we thought, well, what the fuck is this? This is just so weird. Plus, they weren't playing Western music. They were playing stuff that's definitely odd rhythms and meters. Yeah. You know, it, was, it was just... And then it turns out the reason is when these indigenous people get drafted into the Peruvian army, they are given these instruments to learn to play. And they play then in the army band. And then they take them home at the end. And then they do something original with them. I mean, they make up their own music. And Philip was so taken with that. It really it forms the basis of that anthem piece that occurs three times. And then the other thing that is an important part of Paragatsi is uh, we part of the trip was, uh, yeah, we went to the Altiplano. We also went to Brazil. Philip went to see this gold mine called Serra Pelada, where people are like 
this is the opening shot of Polakotsky. People are slipping and sliding up the side of this. Very famous the, scene. <laughs> a, a grim scene, the yeah. mud, mud, muddy pit. And that became a big samba piece, which again was we we, we went to Brazil. We heard samba. We you know we went to a scola di samba, and, and we got a good taste of it there. So that that infused that music. And then we went to Africa, and we heard some interesting music there that then became also part of Polkasi. So we went to all these places, and of course Philip was already familiar with Indian music, so. He didn't have to go to India. But the African music was quite interesting. The, the instrument called the balafon, which is like a xylophone, but it's not tuned to Western intonation. So we sampled it to be able to use it as a Western instrument. And then the uh, the canas, the bamboo flutes that in, were in Peru, that um, you know, I brought in a, an ace bamboo flute, flute player to play what the part that Philip wrote. And he took a look at it. He said, I can't do this. There's no way you could play this, you know. Triple overdubs and it's not enough. So I said, "Well, what about sampling?" I said, "Well, I don't really want to do that because because I don't want those samples out that." I said, "Well, I swear to God, if you do this for me, I'll never give them to a soul. It'd just be for us for this show. That's it." And he accepted that, and he recorded these samples that are an intrinsic intrinsic part of the Poikatsi score. So we had to work like that with getting ethnic instruments to conform to Western scales and it was a, a, a bit of a challenge but by then we had this technology you know when, when we recorded Karinaskatsi we were still on analog tape by the time we recorded Polkatsi we were using computers and digital tape and it was a different different ball game yeah the beginnings of that when you were going on these excursions I guess you were looking for influence by different local instrumentation, or were you trying to get field recordings, or both? Well, we weren't getting field recordings. In fact, I took a tape recorder, but I never used it. Because the point was basically to just enjoy the experience and you know dig the whole thing. <laughs> and we had guides. We had a guide in South America, an Argentinian named Bernardo Palumbo, and he wasn't very swift in Portuguese, so we got another guide in Brazil, Chico da Costa, shepherded us around Brazil. I mean, when we went to Africa, we had Fode Muso Suso, who was a griot from the Gambia, and he knew where to go, what music to hear, and what to look up. You know, It would have been a waste of time without people to know where to go. Mm. And so the guides were really important. Yeah, I imagine. I mean, in, in, incredible piece of music and film as well. And then I guess, like, thirdly, yeah. not quite, Oh, no extra S. Yeah, that that becomes darker, uh, like a, almost a darker score. You know, strangely, like around the time right before you know nine eleven, and I know you guys yeah. were kind right. of down there in that area yeah. generally, and Yoyama involved, I guess as well. That's right for that uh -huh. recording. But again, very different score, kind of a very different film. You know, still the similar concept. Did you ever uh, have you guys performed the other two in a live? Yes, setting? we have. Yeah, how how often yeah. is that? Well, uh, let's see. When was the last time we did the trilogy in Paris in 2019? Mm. All three in the ensemble version. A lot of work. We're now uh, being asked to do a. Now there are ensemble plus orchestra versions of Kainskatsi and Poakatsi, but we don't yet have one for Nakarkatsi. Yeah. But we've been asked to make it, so it's going to be worked on this winter so that we can do all three with orchestra 
uh, at some point. Now, I don't know how that's going to work logistically because to do all three with orchestra means an orchestra is going to have to give up at least six days to be able to have rehearsal performance, rehearsal performance, rehearsal performance. And maybe that's not enough, you know. So it doesn't seem realistic to me that it's going to work like that. I think it has to be spread out over a couple of weeks to do orchestral versions of all three. But however it shapes up, this is now something that's been requested by our European promoters to do. And uh, it looks like it's going to happen. Also, I guess, uh, but for the original Koinaskasi recording, like that was not the entire recording, right? It was, you didn't do the whole 87 or whatever it is minutes. It was sort of the, the highlights or abbreviated version. And then you all in the late 90s properly recorded everything again or re-recorded everything, right? Is that correct? Not true. No. no. No, we did the whole score at the beginning and it was used as the soundtrack for the film. So the soundtrack itself is the But entire... the album that came out. Yes, I mean the album. The album was yeah. cut down. Yeah, it was cut down. But then you properly released the entire score years later. Is that correct? I'm I'm not sure actually that we did. I mean... It sounds like they sound different, but maybe they're remixed or remastered. Or no, it's it's re it's it's re-recorded. Re-recorded. Yeah. So the original came out on, uh, I guess it was Island Records, and then um, you know Philip signed a contract with Nunsuch, and they said we want Conan Scotsy, and they tried to buy it from Island, and Island said no way, we're not selling it, we're just holding onto it. So there was no rights to the music, just to that recording. So. None such. Bob Horowitz said, well, we can just record it again. Uh, oh, okay. So we did. We recorded it again. And that became the Nunsuch version of Karnaskazi, which again, it's not the full-length theme. The full-length film is 87 minutes, so you're not going to have the whole soundtrack on a single CD. Or a double record. It wouldn't even fit. <laughs> it could be. It could be. It could have been, but it wasn't. We didn't yeah. do that. The only time that we actually did the entire soundtrack we did a live recording with the New York Philharmonic, and I think that whole thing was released maybe on, on a Blu-ray or something, or a DVD, audio, or whatever, to get more time. But anyway, yeah. Uh, What's your preference? The film, live. <laughs> the li- so the, re- the re-recording or the original? Oh, yeah, the, re- the re-recording is, I think, far better. You like it better. Uh, you know, they're, they're these arguments that go around about, like, Einstein on the beach. Which is the best Einstein on the beach? Well, for me, there's no question that the re-recording, which also, uh, that was another thing that Nunsuch wanted to have their own Einstein on the beach. They tried to buy it from CBS Sony, and they said, no, you can't have it. We're not selling. So they said, well, okay, we'll record it again, which they did. So that's why the two, three, four, I don't know how many recordings of Einstein now. But anyway. Hmm. Um, that's how that came about. Is it true some unused outtakes have popped up over the years on various releases as well that stem from Coin of Scotsy? Oh, I don't know about that. Yeah. I mean, I know there's a some guy did a did a rock version of the opening, you know, with drums and stuff. And people have done kind of like that kind of stuff. Are you guys all uh, a fan of like the popular culture? references that pop up like the simpsons and uh, you know other tv shows or whatever that sort of integrated well i'm not much into that so uh, no. no it kind of goes past me do they go do they get permission from you or they uh well not for me probably from our publisher don vegan yeah yeah like video games mostly or... mostly i mean mostly i mean those guys those guys are on the case about 
about unauthorized reuse of stuff. And so I think they're probably they're probably doing it right. I mean, there have been a couple of cases where <laughs> yeah, yeah, somebody did something they shouldn't have done, and they got slammed with the lawsuit. Um, like, I don't know, did you ever see the Breathless remake with Richard Gere? And yeah. <laughs> did you see that movie? Yeah. Saw both. Not that you, not that you want to talk about it, but <laughs> they yeah. stole the music from, uh, I think it was music from uh, Glassworks. Oh. And they had said to Philip, well, you know, we'll hire you to, to write the music and then, uh, you know, you can like rework some of this, your own material. But then they didn't. They hired another guy to do it and just use it, went right ahead, bang. And uh, Philip sued the crap out of them and won. Because they, they, you know, they had promised one thing, and they just went ahead and did another. And I guess the the move they have so much money in Hollywood, they don't, they just don't care some of the time. But anyway, that's one example of uh, kind of thing that goes on. You know that. Um, well, I know, like Stranger Things used it as well. Which you know, the good and bad of that, I guess, is that it's going to bring the music to a whole new, younger audience. You know, a whole, uh-huh. whole new generation who a lot of people are drawn to that for the music. You know, I think people, uh-huh. young younger kids or discovering electronic music and, and music from the past because of that TV show. But then a lot of uh, artists, some forgotten, are just getting rediscovered in very big ways uh-huh. um, for that. But I'm sure that is by far a proper license from you all. What about, are there any future collaborations with uh, Godfrey Reggio? There's a current one that just came out called Once Within a Time. Have you seen anything about that? I've seen it listed, but I have not seen it yet it uh it premiered at the museum of modern art and then it started playing in theaters around and uh, it's had great reviews it's uh it's a unique kind of a thing it's not like godfrey's other work that's different he actually has yeah it's quite different he actually has actors oh. and there's it's not exactly a plot but there's something <laughs> more linear about it it's uh it's really quite interesting uh i was originally not so excited about it but then when i saw the the final version of it i said you know what this is actually good and then people people are loving it the critics are reviewing it they're loving it and uh originally it got rejected at all the film festivals and godfrey said great we don't want them anyway <laughs> and and uh, you know he found this outlet open at the museum of modern art and they did a whole retrospective of all his films mm-hmm. and but this was the capping piece of it and then it got a lot of attention. I think the whole body of his work, plus this last thing. So, I mean, most of the major film publications have reviewed it. And now, it then it started playing in theaters around. It's still playing in theaters, which kind of astonished me because I didn't think it would have much of a life. But it does. And it's odd because it's not even an hour long. It's a little less than an hour, you know, kind yeah. of an odd length. So it's not quite a feature, but... That doesn't seem to bother anybody. Proper soundtrack release for it? Uh, not no, yet. Not yet. Yeah. yeah. Not yet. I mean, I think it probably should get a soundtrack release. Right. I think there is some rights issues or something. I don't know what's involved in that. Why we're not? You know, why haven't I been asked to mix the album yet? I don't. I don't know what's going on. Well, on on my to do list for a viewing for sure. Uh, and you you conducted all of these, right? Pretty much all yes. of those scores with yes, Godfrey. Yeah. Is there anything else that uh, the listeners should know, like for this coming up performance, or anything else that's related coming out shortly that you'd want to get out there? Well, I would just say it to the audience: don't study anything to come and see this movie. 
just come with an open mind and, and see it. If you don't know anything about it, it's probably just as well. And, you know, you're going to have an experience that is unlike going to almost any other movie. And I think you'll find that it's profound in some way. It's not a narrative film. There's no plot. There's not a word of dialogue. There's no actors. But it's a story of humanity. And that, that's more or less the point, right? That each person's going yes. to take away their own yes, interpretation. Yes, each person take away their own interpretation. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I, I thank you so much for your time and willingness to come back. And um, I look forward to the performance in a few days. We do have, a, we are planning to do a 50th anniversary of Einstein on the Beach in a concert version this, in the spring. Oh. We'll see how that plays out. It's already 50 for that. This is 40, right? 41. Yeah, it came out in, Einstein came out in 76. Oh, that's, wait a minute, what am I talking about? 76 is Einstein. I guess that's down the road a bit. What are we talking about? Oh, I know, it's not Einstein, it's Music in 12 Parts, Ah. is is the uh, commemorative show this spring. Coming out. Came out in 1974. And where will that be? That will also be. Town Hall? Will it be a Town Hall? I think so, yeah. Yeah. They have a kind of like a soft spot for us now. They, okay. they, they want to have us like around regularly. So. I'm sure. <laughs> Any chance they'd get. But yeah, again, my guest, Michael Riesman, the uh, keyboardist and uh, music director of Philip Glass Ensemble. They will be performing. The ensemble will be performing on Wednesday, November 29th, 7 p.m. at New York City's Town Hall. And uh, get your tickets while they're still available. Go to, uh, I guess, thetownhall.org. And also, of course, go visit michaelreisman.com and philipglassensemble.com. Yeah. Yeah. But I thank you again for your, your time and hope to, uh, hope to see you again soon.